0: we are taking a little break from Romans. I had mentioned that. We're going to focus in a little bit on Christmas in particular. Not that Romans doesn't apply to Christmas. It most certainly does. But we'll take a little break, focus a little more directly on Christmas, and then we'll return, Lord willing, to Romans come the new year. Uh, Last week, the first week of Advent, we did look at Romans 3, the righteousness of God that is revealed to us that comes through Jesus. The fact that Jesus has entered into our world to save us and rescue us from sin. What I want to do now is sort of look at Christmas in the New Testament. And that sounds pretty obvious because Christmas is told in the New Testament. Of course, the narrative of Jesus' birth itself is told in two of the four Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. But it's referred to later on in the New Testament in the letters in different places as well. I want to look at some of them. And we're going to start here with this sermon on Revelation Revelation chapter 12, and uh, if you've never studied Revelation, or if you've done a little bit of study, you know that Revelation is a hard book. It's filled with symbols, describes an ongoing battle of good and evil, and an ultimate victory that comes through Jesus Christ. So in some sense, the symbols simplify the story of Christmas, and at the same time, they sort of intrigue us to look deeper, to try to understand What's going on? And this passage in Revelation Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, is often referred to for Christmas. A clear, simple, universal story that reveals to us how the Son, Jesus, has entered our world and has come to redeem us. Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, is born. Look with me at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads. Seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and the study and application of it. Here's where we're going. Very simply, uh, the three symbols here, the woman, God's people, verses 1 and 2, the dragon, our enemy, verses 3 and 4, and then finally 5 and 6, the male child, our savior. Okay, So um, you may have a sort of presupposition as to what these things refer to. Let's see. Um, First thing he describes is a sign in heaven. So understand that he is saying what I see in this vision is signifying something else. He is not trying to be literal. Where the Bible is meant to be taken literally, where it speaks literally, we should take it literally. Where it's intentionally trying to signify or be symbolic, we should take it symbolically. And the first sign he sees here is a woman. And he describes her as shining with brilliance, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And with a crown over her head with the 12 stars in it. Probably for the average Jewish child, they would have immediately thought of Joseph's dream in the Old Testament. Not Joseph, the father of Jesus, but Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of the early patriarchs. Who had this dream of the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, his 11 brothers who all sort of bowed down to him, and that picture of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes. The woman is also pregnant, so that gives sort of an expectation of something of someone coming into this world. Obviously, the way this woman is sort of described, this, this baby will be some central figure, a very special. Individual Again, I think people's minds would immediately come to think of the Messiah, the central figure of Israel's history. And she is in agony. She's crying in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. These are the pre-epidural days, right? These are days in which uh, pregnancies were very painful, as they still are, don't get me wrong, but uh, a, a trial and also a danger of even becoming fatal. When we had our first son, we tried to go with, I say we, I, I shouldn't even be included in this, right? My wife tried to go without an epidural until it became obvious that we needed a C-section. And at that point in time, uh, there is no choice. So she had to get it. And then when, we, when Sophie, my daughter, came along, we said, right from the start, we're going epidural, right from the beginning, right? No choice. We're going to go right at it that way. Pregnancies can be extremely painful, but in history, they are also extremely risky. We come back to the woman at the very end of the passage where she flees into the wilderness to a place that is prepared for her. She is safe. She is nourished. She is provided for by God. Now, who is this woman? Who is this woman? Um, many, of course, have seen a reference here to Mary. To Mary, um, who is the one who literally became pregnant with Jesus and brings him into the world. Does this refer to Mary? Mary. Trick question, in my opinion. Yes, it does, because Mary is part of Israel. And this certainly seems to be a reference to something bigger and broader than just one woman. Uh, The 12 stars, as I said, almost certainly represent the 12 tribes of Israel, or maybe even the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So this is a reference, really, to the people of God throughout the ages. Old Testament faithful Israel in the New Testament true church. By the way, that's a very, very common illustration of the people of God. Uh, In the Old Testament, Israel is described as the wife of God. Uh, If you read the book of Hosea, it talks about Israel as God's wife committing spiritual adultery uh, with him, turning to the gods of the nations. And Hosea the prophet is called to take to himself an unfaithful woman and love her no matter what. As an illustration, a living illustration of God's love for his people, Israel. In the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ, one he loves truly and sincerely. Ephesians 5 talks about marriage. It's that great marriage pas- uh, passage where husbands are called to love their wives and wives, we submit to one another and so forth. And what he describes there is that's ultimately a picture of the church. And Christ's Love for his wife and his bride. Even in the book of Revelation, this is all heading to what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. Where Jesus is united to his church, his people, throughout all ages, forever and ever. And she is described as beautiful and brilliant. And especially as you contrast this woman with this ugly dragon. Actually, William Blake... A famous uh, poet and artist, kind of influenced by the Puritans, did a whole series of paintings called uh, The Red Dragon, The Woman in the Red Dragon. Here's one of them, hopefully. Um, and this is in the 1800s. So stark of a difference, right? You have this ugly, humanoid looking creature, and then you have this woman who is shining like the sun. Let me just say this, friends, before we move on by way of application. Notice how God describes his church. Beautiful. I know it's common today to mock the church, to ridicule it, to insult it, to bash it. Not God. He looks at his bride as his wife. He loves. Jesus dies for Now don't get me wrong, of course the church is not without fault, um, but we don't use the church as the example (laughs) of immaturity, of spiritual failure. We love the church, we seek to strengthen and build up and encourage the church. Also notice that the church faces trials, the people of God, these times of great suffering. This was true in the first century, right immediately pre-Jesus, as the Roman oppression over uh, ancient Israel. And then we see this in the early church, the amount of persecution that was going on, that almost is certainly reflected in the book of Revelation, with the emperors Nero and later emperors like Caligula and Domitian, who severely persecuted the Christian church. By the way, there is no promise of prosperity in the Bible. I know that some TV preachers may say that. Nothing in the Bible says Christians will not get sick, will not get COVID, uh, will not get cancer, will not get into car accidents or have heart disease and will be rich, will never struggle with poverty or any... Nothing in the Bible makes that type of promise. The promise in the Bible is the Lord is with us. He provides for us. He gives us strength and grace to endure. And that ultimately all suffering will be behind us. But as we see here, the woman is in Agony. Also notice here that she brings the Messiah into the world. Where does Jesus come from? He comes out of Israel. He starts the church. He's one with us. I used to have a little bit of a problem thinking of Jesus as our brother. Right? Some people would refer to him as Jesus our brother. In fact, one of the great songs, Ode to Joy by Beethoven, Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Christ our brother. So you read the book of Hebrews and you realize how profoundly biblical and important that is he is one of us fully human like us in every way yet without sin in order to redeem us he would need to be one of us he comes and arises out of the church out of the people of God Verse 3 and 4, the dragon, the dragon is our enemy. He sees another sign, again, signifying something, a great red dragon. And notice the contrast again, the dragon is ugly. It's described as having seven heads and ten heads horns. Almost certainly the heads, you know, do do sort of reflect its strength and its power and its fierceness and danger. But notice the asymmetry here, right? Unlike the beautiful woman clothed in the sun, there's a sort of lack of order and beauty to this. Some heads have two horns and some one, or some three and some none, or who knows how this whole thing works out. It's this disfigured, ugly thing. Described with seven diadems, one crown for each of its heads, it fashions itself some sort of king. As if it is the true ruler of this world. It is powerful, though, verse 4, that its tail sweeps one-third of the stars from heaven. By the way, uh, there have been different references as to what that may refer to. I'll give you two. Um, some have said this refers to the deception of God's people. So what were the stars from verse, the very beginning, verses 1 and 2? The stars refer to the 12 tribes or the 12 apostles, and so some are deceived even from among God's people, those who claim to know God, to know Christ, but don't. But if you look at a little later in verse 7, it seems to refer to there, um, to a rebellion in heaven. So the angelic host, as if there is this treachery and one-third of the angels are in rebellion against God in heaven. He is described as the great enemy here of the woman and the child. Waiting with viciousness and wrath to devour the child immediately upon its birth. To stop the work of this Messiah coming into the world. Who's the dragon? This may be one of the easier questions, but almost certainly a reference to the enemy. Satan, the devil, Lucifer. Lucifer just is a, a Latin term that means light bearer. The one who bears the lux. Uh, A fallen angel, this is the ancient serpent, as we found in the beginning of Genesis. Notice in the very beginning of Genesis, chapter 3, and I I have a picture here that kind of brings this out. This picture was from um, uh, Eve to Mary. Uh, That's the uh, grace, this was uh, done by the Cistercian sisters of the Mississippi Abbey. And it kind of brings out one is Eve and one is Mary, the passing on sort of of. Grace here. And notice uh, the idea. What does God say about the woman? She will have enmity with the serpent. The two of them won't get along. Satan and the woman will be in constant battle against one another. He puts enmity between the seed of the woman, who eventually does what? Crushes the head of the serpent. If you know your Genesis here, Satan knows very well that his only real chance of a downfall is the seed of the woman. So he waits patiently to devour it as if he could somehow outsmart God and stop his plan from coming about. The dragon is powerful and dangerous. Elsewhere in the Bible, Satan is described as like a roaring lion looking for Christians to devour. His desire is to destroy, to deceive, to persecute. And to eventually lead people astray. He is a liar. Jesus said, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. He's described as an angel of light. One theologian said, if you were to see Satan in the flesh or in an appearance, you would not run away in fear. You would be tempted to bow down in worship. Because of the deception of his beauty. But notice that more than anything else, his motive here is to persecute God's people. To be an enemy of the woman. And ultimately, to stop the Messiah's work of bringing salvation. We see this in the whole birth narrative of Christmas, of course. What happens when Jesus is born King Herod? actually seeks the, what's sometimes called the murder of the innocents, the two, every child from two years and younger in Bethlehem, slaughtered. Jesus flees to Egypt. Even when he eventually returns a little older, uh, Herod the Great has passed away, but his sons have taken rule, and over the southern area is Herod Archelaus and Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, says, we're not going back there. They go all the way back to Nazareth in the north where Herod Antipas has control. He's not so great himself, but he's not as bad as his brother. But still today, Satan's greatest desire is to oppress and persecute God's people and to lead them astray, to stop the spread of the gospel, to stop the work of Jesus Say a few things about this by application, and that is first, uh, don't be too consumed by this, okay? Um, we, we don't need to be obsessive uh, about uh, Satan. Uh, I don't know that much, honestly, about devils and demons, and I think I know all I want to know, okay? So we don't have to be overly obsessed. We don't need to know all the details. Uh, C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, right? So we can go wrong in both ways. We can be too obsessed with demonology, see as if there's a sort of devil hiding behind every closed door. I don't think that's the picture that we see uh, in scripture. That was very common in the Middle Ages, by the way. There's this one story where Martin Luther, the great reformer, writes in his uh, letter that he threw an inkwell at a demon that appeared to him in the room. Probably not Martin. Probably he was in an old creaky castle and thought he saw something that wasn't there. But I think the other danger is very common today, too, as well. A lot of times what people say is, I don't believe in a personal devil anymore. It's just a symbol of evil, of corporate evil. Well, Scripture very clearly describes an actual personal devil. Not a physical devil, but an actual being who is seeking to deceive and to harm to be aware that there is an enemy and his desire is to persecute but even more so than that to make you doubt lose faith, lose heart and turn to his rule over this world he wears the diadems which are just another word for crowns claiming the rulership of this world might makes right do whatever it takes to get ahead Lie, cheat, steal, deceive, do whatever feels good. Come into my kingdom and recognize my authority rather than recognizing Christ. Notice, though, very important, according to this passage right here, uh, he doesn't succeed. (laughs) He couldn't succeed against the woman to to harm her or the child. Um, Well, for one, God is infinitely more Powerful. Even if you take, even if you take God out of the picture, right? Even if you say, well, one third of the angels are in rebellion somehow in some mysterious way, um, two thirds of the angels are still on the side of good. That's a pretty clear majority right i mean uh they still have uh, the upper hand here john milton in his book paradise lost which again is not the bible but it's a great work of, of literature describes michael the archangel as this grave powerful figure and says he is satan's really equal in every way yet on the side of good but honestly you don't even need to go there because you put god into the picture and there's no contest god the source of all that is All that exists, spiritual or physical, is contingent upon him. If he simply wills it not to be, it is not. If he simply wills it to be, it becomes. His word creates. There's no chance of Satan ever succeeding. He is simply a rebel to the end. And Christmas itself is a great victory. The dragon tried to stop it from happening and failed. Jesus did enter into this world. The Messiah has come. He did go to the cross. He did die our death. He did rise from the dead and triumph over the grave. He has called people to himself from every tongue and tribe and nation. Or he is in the process of doing that as we head to that great day of his return. Don't fear the enemy. Recognize his deception, but don't fear him. And then we come to the child. The child. We've got the woman, the dragon, and the child. Very simple uh, symbolism here. The man, she gives birth to a male child here. Um, Jesus, of course. Uh, we have the uh, idea of, of the Messiah being born as an infant into a manger. He's described as one who rules with a rod of iron. Um, the reason for that is Psalm 2, a very uh, common Sort of understood passage uh, prophesying the coming Messiah, that he comes ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Not so much that his rule is harsh and strict, but that he is powerful and able to protect. I almost get the impression of this child holding this rod of iron and just smashing the serpent in the head, right? Just bashing it away, chasing it away. It has no power over him. Eventually, the child is caught up to God and to his throne. Most likely a reference to his resurrection, his ascension, and as he today, even now, sits at the right hand of the Father. What happens to the woman afterwards? She flees into the wilderness, notice, to a place prepared for her. This isn't plan B, this is plan A. This is what God planned all along. She will be provided for and protected out there in the desert. In the desert, things are sparse, but safe. And she's to be nourished there for one thousand two hundred and sixty days. You might say, "What does that refer to, Pastor Rick?" Um, numbers in Revelation are interesting. Okay, so we can have lots of debate and discussion about it. But of course, twelve hundred and sixty days is three and a half years. Later on, it's described as a time, times and a half a time, a time first to a year, times two years. It's three half a time, three and a half years. At one point, it's described as 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. And of course, three and a half is half of seven, which is a very important number in Revelation. We also see that in Daniel. But for a specific set amount of time, again, depending on how literal you take that, she is out there in the wilderness. And what does that refer to? Okay, a few things here. This is where I'm going to, I need you to put a little bit your historical thinking caps on for a bit. But um, certainly it reminds us of Israel. Israel, when they left Egypt, did what? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. By the way, it's about 40 miles from where they left Egypt to where they were going, the promised land. It took them 40 years to go 40 miles. I'm, I'm not super great at math, but that's about a mile a year. I think most people can go faster than that, right? Um, uh, God instead keeps them in the desert to sanctify them to prepare them to eventually enter into the promised land we see this also reflected in Jesus Jesus begins his ministry right after his baptism doing what? going out into the wilderness where he spends not 40 years but 40 days fasting and being tempted and succeeding to overcome temptation where in many ways Israel failed but most, a lot of people would see this as a reference to the present time, so all the way from the day of the ascension when the sun is taken up to glory, all the way until today and even going beyond that until the day of Christ's return. So that 1260 refers to all of Christian history. Others would say this refers to a future time yet to come. Usually those who would take this very literally would say this refers to a three and a half years at the very end of history. Either before or after Jesus returns, depending on how you interpret certain things. Still others would see this as a time that has already been fulfilled. A time in which God's people was taken out into the wilderness... For a short period of time, not necessarily three and a half years, and out there were protected and prepared for ministry. By the way, that's how I take it. (laughs) And the reason why, I'll give you an explanation, and you don't have to agree with me. That's the great thing about Revelation. Well, let me explain why I think that is the case. Because we actually have a historical precedent in which that actually happened. Um, That's what happened to the early church. There was a great deal of persecution in the fall of Jerusalem. The Christians weren't there. Why? Because they fled out into the wilderness for a short period of time. Jesus says in Mark 13:14, uh, "But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains." He gave him this warning. By the way, the abomination of desolation, everyone would have understood what that means. It has to do with Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah celebrates the restoration, the cleansing of the temple in 167 BC, also before Jesus. Um, and what happened is Antiochus Epiphanes, Roman, conquered the temple region and he sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies, a huge sacrilege. And that was known as the abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus here says, when you see that happening again, Essentially, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not to be, the Holy of Holies, let those who are in Judea flee out into the mountains. Interestingly enough, the early Christians took Jesus very seriously and literally on this very issue. Two historians, one Epiphanius in the late um, 300s, 4th century, said this, From there it took its beginning after the exodus from Jerusalem, when all the disciples went to live in Pella, because Christ had told them to leave Jerusalem and to go away since it would undergo a siege. Because of this advice, they lived in Perea, another name for Pella, after having moved to that place, as I said. Similar, Eusebius, one of the most well-known church historians, again from the 300s, the people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation, most likely this, command by Jesus, before the war to those in the city, who are worthy of it, to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which they called Pella. To it, those who believed on Christ traveled from Jerusalem, so that when holy men had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea. In fact, Epiphania says not a single Messianic Christian was killed, maybe exaggerating a little bit, in the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. The Romans invaded, set fire, to the temple the whole thing burned to the ground in a blazing fire and it is said that 1.1 million people were killed and the christians had already left out into the wilderness well whether this refers to pella or not i'll leave it to your own sort of study and interpretation but there is certainly a timeless truth being said here god provides god protects He nourishes, He shields His people. Not that there isn't any agony, not that there isn't any pain to the Christian life, but we will never be overcome or devoured or destroyed by the devil or by this world. He will see to the love of His bride. Our Savior has come as a child, born into this world. What is the most common symbol for Christmas? A manger. Vulnerable, humble, out into the shepherding fields of Bethlehem. By the way, this is the Adoration of the Shepherds by Gerard von Honthorst from 1622. The dragon who claims rule over this world with his diadems could not stop the coming of the one true, real king, our brother, the Lord Jesus. He is divine. Caught up to God the Father today sits at the right hand of the throne. But he is man like us. Who dies in our place to save us and make us his own. Friends, we may be on this side of heaven now. But eventually, like our brother Larry and many others. We'll be on the side of glory with him. Until he comes back. Jesus Christ the savior and the lord is born very simple basic symbols even a child can understand a woman a dragon and a baby symbols are very powerful things uh, sometimes i think we don't recognize how, how the importance of symbols we think of the us flag people will literally Charge into battle carrying nothing but the flag of our United States, right? That's that's meaningful. Compare that to someone carrying a flag of the hammer and sickle. Very different impersonations, right? The Christian cross says so much. The Nazi swastika, something very different. Symbols. Christmas, of course, is filled with symbols. The Christmas tree is symbolic of something. Santa is symbolic of something. I get a question all the time. People ask, Pastor Rick, should I tell my kids about Santa? Do we have any little kids here? I don't want to ruin anything. <laughs> and I say, listen, when they're really young, they have a big imagination. They got their you know, imaginary knights and dragons and fights and absolutely let them enjoy the, the beauty of imagination. Santa's a symbol of generosity and jolliness and the whole Christmas idea. When they get older, begin to explain to them the real meaning. But Light star, and so forth. Here he uses these basic symbols to describe to us the most profound reality. A dragon, the symbol of evil, ready to kill and destroy, powerful and dangerous. A woman who is beautiful, who nurtures. Augustine said, if God is our father, the church is our mother. And a child, innocent, vulnerable, eventually growing into a man who becomes our savior and our king he's the one we celebrate this christmas season jesus christ the savior and lord is born Would you pray with me gracious father thank you for your words continual reminder of the truths encapsulated in this short story of six verses that you love us like a bride like a wife, that we are your people, Lord, and you protect us and provide for us and prepare for us a place of safety and you see to us that we make it faithfully to the end, that we have an enemy and he's fierce and ugly and he would seek our destruction, but you have brought into this world the seed of the woman, you brought into this world the child, the Lord Jesus, who has come to redeem and save us and that through faith in him we have life eternal. So, Father, as we continue to sing and pray and take communion and praise you, Lord, let it be a true act of worship from our hearts up to you in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.